0: Today's interviews were originally aired in 2019. In 1979, in Greensboro, North Carolina, members of the KKK and the American Nazi Party shot and killed five labor and civil rights activists who are marching in an anti-Klan demonstration. Reverend Nelson Johnson was one of the people injured in what became known as the Greensboro Massacre.
1: The Klan caravan, a line of cars came down and turned in this direction. When the eighth car in a nine-car caravan stopped and the back of the trunk came up and people got out of the ninth car, retrieved long weapons, uh, looked like shotguns, and started to fire in the direction of the cloud.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, homegrown terrorism in North Carolina. Later in the show, before the Civil War, there were black writers in England and America who were using the philosophical principles of the Enlightenment to call out the barbarism of slavery. But first, after the killings in the Greensboro Massacre in 1979, There were two criminal trials of several Klan and American Nazi Party members. In both cases, they were acquitted by an all-white jury. Aaron Shetterly is working on a forthcoming book about the killings called Morningside, Murder, Memory, and the Struggle for Equality in Greensboro. Aaron Shetterly was a fellow at Virginia Humanities in 2019.
1: What many people don't know is that the Klan was actually on the rise in 1979 in response in part to the beginning of offshoring of jobs, high gas prices, things that made people feel economically threatened. And then the Klan in July decided to show Birth of a Nation as a recruiting tool in one of the mill towns south of Greensboro. The activists decided to confront them.
0: And tell me who the activists were. This was a multiracial
1: group. So the black and white and actually Latino also marchers were trying to organize people in the local textile mills to form a union and to advocate for better health care, higher wages. And they were experiencing difficulty because both the management in those textile mills and... White people who did not want to see black and white people working together in those mills and feared black people taking white jobs pushed back and scared people from joining the union.
0: Right. So there was this march they organized in Greensboro to push back against the Klan.
1: And there was this face-off where armed Klansmen faced off against these activists and they yelled at each other, but there were two policemen there. And the policemen convinced the Klansmen to go back inside and... Nothing violent happened except a shouting match.
0: So that was July before the November massacre. Exactly. Anything in between?
1: In between, the Communist Workers' Party activists, the labor organizers, thought that they would build on this by holding a march to try to demystify the Klan, that they would talk to people about whose interests the Klan were actually serving, to say, don't be so scared of the Klan. They're actually, they're cowards. I mean, they wanted to put on a show for the people of Greensboro and dramatize this. And they miscalculated. They did not think that the Klan, in the middle of the day, would come into a black neighborhood in a city, most of these Klansmen were rural people, and cause any trouble.
0: So was it especially threatening to the Klan that this protest group was a multiracial group?
1: Yes, this was a potentially powerful coalition if they could make people come together across that line, which the legacy of both anti-unionism and racism in North Carolina is deep.
0: I understand the marchers themselves had a couple of weapons, a couple handguns.
1: They did. The night before the march, there was a big discussion about whether to bring arms or not. Nelson Johnson, who organized the march and still is an activist in Greensboro today, said, we should not bring arms. The police are going to be looking for us to be carrying arms and they're going to arrest us. Other people said, I think we need to be armed. We're scared. So they compromised. They allowed three people, I think, to carry guns at the march. At about 10.30 in the morning, the marchers were setting up sound equipment on a flatbed truck. They were singing folk songs and chanting death to the Klan and holding up a Klan effigy and getting ready to march. The march was scheduled to start at about noon. And about 11.20, all of a sudden, a caravan of men started driving toward them. And people realized what was happening slowly. Um, A a little boy yelled, here comes the Klan. One of the cameramen because there were four news crews there filming this, it was an African American man, former Air Force, and he was the first, not surprisingly, to notice a Confederate flag license plate on one of the cars and zoomed in on it. As the cars drove by, people started to yell at them. A couple of people kicked the cars, and then the front car stopped. A young man in the passenger seat stands up out of the window of the car and shoots two shots into the air. Well, this causes panic, and they start running away from that shot toward what ends up being the back of the caravan. Now, at the back of the caravan, a number of these men get out of their car, open a trunk to a car, and pass out guns and start shooting. They end up killing five of the leaders of this group, injuring another 10, including one of their own in friendly fire, and the security guards desperately try to shoot back, but miss everything. Now, going back to that cameraman, the African-American man who zoomed in, he said something very interesting when I talked to him. He said, what I thought I saw was a precise military operation. The shooters picked out the targets they wanted to shoot, and they shot them.
0: Was there much argument later over whether the Klan came ready to shoot these people, or whether they just simply reacted with rage when their cars got kicked?
1: That was the basis. So there were multiple trials after this. The first trial was a state murder trial brought against five or six of these Klansmen. They had an all-white jury, and they ended up being acquitted on self-defense. What's interesting about that, you know, you might say, well, did the fact that the communists had guns matter in the self-defense charge? Yes, it mattered. It mattered to a jury that was afraid of communists and black people, If you actually think about it, the marchers had a parade permit. The Klansmen didn't. The Klansmen drove into them and threatened them. They responded. So who's really acting in self-defense?
0: There was a second trial, and they were also acquitted by an all-white jury.
1: Yeah, the second trial was a federal criminal civil rights trial brought by the Department of Justice. And once again, the people, you know, the defendants were the Klans and Nazi, and they were again acquitted by an all-white jury.
0: There was a third trial. Were they acquitted in that one?
1: So the third trial, no. Actually, it was a landmark decision in which, for the very first time in American history, police, Klansmen, and Nazis were held jointly liable for wrongful death of one of the five people killed in Greensboro. And what the lawyers, though, were able to do was to make a very strong case that the police knew enough to stop this caravan at the very least— when they knew that this caravan was coming and had had time to get there.
0: Is the implication that the police were afraid because there was going to be a shootout and they didn't want to be inadvertently shot, or is the implication that police were on the side of the Klansmen?
1: I don't think the police were on the side of the Klansmen, but I don't think they were on the side of the uh, activists either. Perhaps they thought, well, we'll let these two groups we don't like fight a little bit, and then we'll swoop in and arrest them. Perhaps they overlooked the fact of how deadly it could be.
0: As you've been writing a book, you've zeroed in on one man in particular, an African-American minister named Nelson Johnson. What does he represent to you as he undergoes decades of involvement in the civil rights journey?
1: Nelson Johnson represents over 50 years of work as an activist, as a civil rights leader in Greensboro, North Carolina. And this is really what drew me to the story, almost more than the mystery of the Greensboro massacre and what happened, but this long effort to bring equality and equity to poor people of all stripes, but particularly poor Black people in Greensboro on his part. You know, he started out as a follower of Martin Luther King Jr. Then he got into black power and black nationalism. Then he became a communist. And then he became a Christian and decided that the language of radical Christianity, liberation theology, essentially, was what was going to communicate more effectively um, ideas of fairness in American society.
0: What is the language of radical Christianity? Is it love?
1: It's love. And, And this is one of the big transformations, right? If you're talking about communism, you're talking about a dictatorship of the proletariat and one group in power replacing another. In radical Christianity, you're talking about the possible transformation of every single person. And he believes in that now.
0: What was his role in the massacre?
1: He organized that march. He was the leader of it. In fact, he was stabbed, but not killed. I met Nelson Johnson in 2015 in a cafe in Greensboro. And he told me a story. I barely knew about the shooting in Greensboro, but he told me a story about something that happened much later. In 1987, after all the trials were over, the Klux Klan was planning to march in Greensboro again. And at this point, Nelson was a divinity student. He was transforming the way he thought about the world. And he believed that if he could have a one-on-one conversation with some of these Klansmen, that maybe he could convince them not to come to Greensboro. So he got in a car and he drove 70 miles out into rural North Carolina to search for the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, a guy at the time named Carol Crawford. He came up on a trailer with a huge sign out this side that said, no N word allowed. And he drove up the driveway and he knocked on the door and no one was home, but he'd written a letter. And he slipped it under Carol Crawford's trailer door and went home and called him and said, Mr. Crawford, I've been at your house. And Carol Crawford was furious that he had come to his house. He couldn't believe it. He said, I don't believe you. He said, go look at your back door. And he did. And he found the letter. And what the letter did was it appealed to them as fellow Christians to sit down and talk and to see if they couldn't find some common ground. So they said, okay, and Nelson drove back a week later. He was met by two pickup trucks full of men in baseball caps. And Nelson was scared, but he decided that he had come to do this and have this conversation, and they said, follow us. And he thought, my goodness, they're going to take me to a barn somewhere. And they took him to a Holiday Inn. And they sat down at a table, and they opened the curtains in front of a big pane glass window and they had a long conversation. They talked about jobs, they talked about rape, they talked about racial difference, and they argued. But they actually found some common ground and agreed to meet again in the future. What his ask was, was he said, don't come to Greensboro in March, please. And they said, listen, people know we've met with you now. We can't not come, but we promise we won't start any violence. So he got that promise out of them. And after he did that, they said, we want you to know something. We thought you came here to get revenge on us, that you were going to come up and try to kill us, to get revenge for the comrades of yours that we killed. And just so you know, in a a room across the way, on the other side of that pane glass window, we have a man with a gun trade on you, and all we had to do was give the signal and he would have shot you. What I really understood then was both the moral and physical courage that this man possessed to try to close this gap between white and black in uh, North Carolina and the nation. And I thought, I need to know more about this.
0: Many, many years later, in the early 2000s, Reverend Johnson sought to put together a racial reconciliation group in Greensboro. How did that work?
1: At the 20th anniversary of the Greensboro shootings, or the Greensboro massacre, as they called it, a large group gathered in Greensboro to talk about this. At that event in 1999, the idea of a truth and reconciliation process based on the South African model began to be discussed. It led to a formal truth and reconciliation process that ran in Greensboro from 2004 to 2006. It was the first formal truth and reconciliation process run on the South African model in the United States. Um, and they had a commission they had a very formal process and invited people from all sides of the issue to come and speak and a final report of over 500 pages was produced to try to give some context to what had happened main conclusions was that the marchers, the protesters, the activists had acted a bit naively with their death to the clan message they had said hateful things that were bound to incite emotions and did but, they also had to acknowledge that those hateful emotions were also hateful (laughs) and that the Klansmen and Nazis who came were, you know, white power, white supremacists who were intent on uh, killing black people and communists. And they said that the police had at the very least been complicit in these deaths. The Greensboro City Council took up the matter of whether or not to read it as elected representatives and respond to it or not. So they voted six to three not to read officially the report. Six white people voted against reading it. Three black people voted in favor of reading it. So you see the way that the um, uh, willingness to even grapple with this complicated story in the city wasn't there.
0: Are there parallels between what happened in Greensboro in 1979 when five people were slaughtered by the KKK to what happened in Charlottesville many years later, 2017, when the alt-right came in heavily armed and appalled the nation with the tiki torches and hateful slogans?
1: There are parallels, not just in the event itself, but also, I think, in the reaction to the event. So, for example, in Greensboro, right after that happened, a lot of people wanted to say this was just outside agitators that came in. This has nothing to do with Greensboro. And a lot of people wanted to say that about Charlottesville, too. But I feel in both cases, they happened in that place for a reason. And we have to grapple with that history and why you know those people came here or why those people went to Greensboro and why it happened there. Um, so I think that we can't let ourselves off the hook so easily as to say this just came from outside and, and so we don't have to think about it that hard. It's difficult to change our history or to tell ourselves that we have privilege or that what that privilege means. And, you know, that things that we take for granted actually need to be questioned. I was just down in Greensboro last week where a new lawsuit has been filed against Greensboro Police Department that Reverend Johnson is behind. And what's interesting is some of the lawyers that participated in the Greensboro civil case in 1985 are also involved. And it's against the police for the wrongful death of a black man who was wandering around the streets. They tied his hands to his feet, turned him on his stomach, and he couldn't breathe. We've seen this story before, as we all know, in different places. On the side of the family of the man who's bringing the suit with these lawyers, they're saying this is part of a pattern that's gone on for decades. On the side of the city, they're saying this is a frivolous lawsuit that is only about enmity toward the police department. And so you see how we're still stuck. But I hope that actually through this lawsuit and good coverage of it by the local newspapers in Greensboro, that perhaps it will open people's minds a little bit to being able to see these patterns and understand that one way or another they need to be addressed. And I think this is one of the deeper themes of my book, is what do we do about the past? How do we move forward? Do we move forward with it or without it? How do we take it into account and keep going? And I think that what a lot of people like Reverend Johnson are asking for is to pause, take it into account, and move forward in a way that acknowledges this history.
0: Aaron Shutterly is a former fellow at Virginia Humanities and the author of the forthcoming book, Morningside, Murder, Memory, and the Struggle for Equality in Greensboro. African-American writers in the time before the Civil War argued that because of the practice of slavery, the civilizations of Europe and North America were not based on ideas of progress or enlightenment, but were actually founded on barbarism. Stefan Wheelock as a professor of English at George Mason University. His forthcoming book looks at the Black writers of that era who challenged the idea of Western enlightenment.
2: And one of the things that, these writers really wanted us to think about was what slavery actually was doing to American and British civilization. You think about the writer Ottobah Bakugano, who was kidnapped as a slave from Africa, brought to England, and then becomes theologian of sorts and a political writer about Britain and its slaveholding excesses and one of the things that he says is that british culture and particularly british imperial culture was becoming barbaric that its ability to enslave people while talk about freedom and tout the superiority of english freedom that was a contradiction and that that contradiction was going to turn into eventually british savagery he thought what slavery was essentially doing that it would corrode these democratic and Christian values that they believed that they held. In fact, he is one of the first writers to call for the full-scale emancipation of Africans in the New World.
0: Were there other black writers in addition to these two who were um, writing from America?
2: Yes. So there were several. When Benjamin Banneker, the almanist, spoke to Thomas Jefferson. He wrote Thomas Jefferson a, um, an amazing, very direct, poignant letter about the freedom that he and other white elites guaranteed for each other, but took away from Africans. He said, hey, this is a problem, you all. You are creating a situation where your republic is only guaranteeing freedom for the white male few and not for us. Jefferson writes back very politely and says to him, thank you for this letter, but we still need to see how you and your race really improve over time. If the intelligence that you profess to have is something that is actually real. So Jefferson is quite condescending to a person like Benjamin Banneker. Yes, these white elite Enlightenment writers were listening, but they were listening in very narrow ways, always thought about as secondary, people who are not us, people who are not, who have not written extensive philosophical systems that can appeal to the high levels of our civilization.
0: David Walker has had special interest for you. Tell me about David Walker.
2: How do I talk about David Walker? David Walker was and remains one of my favorite writers partly because he really was the first to put in stark terms the potential and power in slave insurrection. He addresses Christian Americans directly, that while they are touting their freedom and their liberty, saying that this is now the freest country in the world, they were enslaving millions of African peoples. He says that these Christian Americans have mistakenly come to believe that heaven has designated blacks as an inheritance to whites and their children forever. He writes in 1829 this pamphlet in four articles and a preamble, mocking, really, and mimicking the Constitution to suggest that what America has done in these four articles is to produce what he calls wretchedness in Black people. That if America produced constitutionally freedom. On the other hand, it produced wretchedness for these masses of Black populations, and that if they pushed over the edge, eventually they were going to revolt.
0: Was there a response on the part of the powers that be to his writings?
2: Oh, absolutely. So he's working in a slop shop, which is really a kind of a consignment shop in Boston. He meets quite a few sailors there who take his work Uh, He sews into their clothes his pamphlet, and they take it down South, and then they, some of them were definitely white sailors, would redistribute them to either literate or illiterate Black communities during the period. And when states like Louisiana and South Carolina and North Carolina found this out, they began to tighten their laws against literacy because they were concerned about the fiery nature of the pamphlet itself. And what was he inciting people to do? He said controversial things like, the Holy Spirit, the God of justice, is on the side of blacks, and that this God of justice may actually raise up an insurrectionary and insurgent force of black people against the United States if Christian Americans choose not to change their ways. Slave insurrection was a very, very, very dangerous and very tormenting idea to whites during the period. They had just experienced globally the traumas and the horrors of the Haitian Revolution, which sent shockwaves across the Atlantic world. People like Thomas Jefferson were horrified at this prospect. And Walker argued, essentially, that America itself was primed for a possibility like that, too.
0: Was there any evidence that people took him up on his words and were inspired by them?
2: Oh, yes. From 1800 up until 1830, there were at least four slave insurrections, at least or conspiracies, right up through to Nat Turner's slave rebellion.
0: Did he write about Thomas Jefferson, who was the author of the Declaration of Independence and um, leader of this notion that America is founded on freedom?
2: Yes. He says there hasn't really been a white governing elite in history, or perhaps a white person in history, that has injured us more than Thomas Jefferson. Basing his claims on Jefferson's controversial Query 14, which had said all kinds of things about black folks from their lack of reasoning capacities to their body odor, to their animalized nature, to what the creator uh, purposed for them to be. And Walker himself thought that here is a man who wrote in very polite language, about the absolute inferiority of black folk. And Walker believed that that idea would essentially take on a kind of popularity in America that would lead slaveholders and whites sympathetic to this view to further strengthen the stranglehold they had over blacks during the period.
0: Have you thought about what relevance all this has for us now as we try as a nation to reckon with racial violence of the past through slavery?
2: Oh, absolutely. What they were writing was prophetic, that this republic and its hypocrisy, its touting of freedom and its upholding of slavery was going to create a society that was going to essentially make room for both the freedom of some and for racial injustice something that we have not gotten past even until this day. And this is The Issue.
0: Stefan Wheelock is a professor of English at George Mason University. He's the author of the forthcoming book, Reason and Slavery, African-Atlantic Writing and the Problem of Modernity. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. The year was 1877. Reconstruction in the South was ending and the U.S. troops were leaving. A new era of white violence against black people, the era we know as Jim Crow, was ramping up. So when Gianluca DeFazio began compiling a database of racialized lynchings in Virginia, he chose the year 1877 as the start date. DeFazio is a professor of justice studies at James Madison University. And the project lead on a database called Racial Terror, Lynching in Virginia, 1877 to 1927. John Luca, we think we know about lynchings and a lot is just beginning to be made public now. Why are we only learning a lot about lynchings after so many years?
3: I think part of the problem is it's a part of our history that we don't want to talk about. One of uh, really terrorism against African-Americans in the South, especially men. And uh, we tend to think of them as, oh, you know, this is a product of uh, bad men being uh, pursued by these uh, crazy mobs. When in reality, these were community events in which the local community was uh, prominent in um taking these persons and uh, hanging them for uh, some accusation of having uh, committing some crimes. And I think what has been changing recently is that we are having a lot of initiatives that start to think about these victims of uh, lynchings as a really victim of uh, terrorism.
0: What were the years where lynchings were prominent and what had touched them off?
3: Well, the... Usually the end of Reconstruction, that's where really we see uh, lynchings taking off. Uh, federal troops leave this out. African-Americans don't have any more protection. But from a legal perspective, all their rights tend to be stripped. And also they don't have any physical protection. Again, federal troops are gone. So who's going to be protecting them? Oh, well, nobody. And lynching becomes a mechanism to get rid of uh, people they're seen undesirable.
0: So what years do we see the first and the last?
3: Towards the end of the 1870s and then uh, 1930s, 1940s, that's when uh, lynchings tend to disappear, which does not mean that racial violence disappears. It's just that now spectacle lynchings are not acceptable anymore.
0: Late 1870s -hmm. to 1930s, even 40s?
3: Yes. 1946, we have one of the worst lynchings in the United States. It was in Monroe, Georgia. It was a quadruple lynching of two couples, two African-American couples. One of the women was also seven months pregnant. They shot them on the way from, from prison where they were being released.
0: And why had they ostensibly done this to these two couples?
3: Well, they were accused of having uh, committing some kind of uh, crimes. They were uh, put in jail. Their white employer had paid the fine and uh, they were taking them back to their farm and uh, were ambushed in a bridge, and that's where we were lynched.
0: How many lynchings, roughly, that we know of throughout the United States?
3: Between 4,000 and 5,000.
0: Do we believe that there were many more than what we know to have been
3: Uh, Absolutely. This is an underestimation of the real number. Uh, If these lynchings were not recorded in newspapers, there is basically no way for us to uh, record them or count them.
0: What did you learn about how locals covered lynchings?
3: Well, that's very interesting because there is definitely a discrepancy between what the local newspapers were saying and what the national newspapers were, were saying. Local newspapers tend to provide a little bit more details. They would often be very defensive, praising the mobs because they would be bring back order, serving justice. Again, there would be a lot of apologetic and justification for what happened.
0: Give me an example of a typical one.
3: Uh, Well, you you can find newspapers saying uh, last night justice was served because uh, such and such person was lynched by this mob uh, led by the most prominent citizen of the community.
0: No, they did not say the most prominent citizens.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. They would uh, very often try to justify what happened in terms of uh, The popular sentiment is uh, widely shared that justice was made and uh, that sent a signal to everyone else. If you're going to be doing something similar, that's what's going to happen to you. And everybody's really happy with this kind of message.
0: So why did mobs do this? We already had somebody Mm -hmm. arrested, Mm -hmm. perhaps unfairly, perhaps not, and who is going to go through the justice
3: system? Because they didn't trust the justice system. They want a form of a popular justice in which the citizen, the local community, has a right in their own views of taking the law into their own hands. And also because it was clear that you are sending a signal to the rest of the community. So you don't want just to have. Justice in the ordinary sense, you want to show the body to the rest of the community. The point is not just to kill. The point is to show and leaving the bodies hanging for a few days sometimes.
0: How maddening to be the family of these victims and to find out time and time again, nobody, when there were dozens of people there, nobody was identified or prosecuted.
3: Oh, absolutely! It was an outrage, and uh, that was part of the lynching as an institution. Again, lynching is not just a product of a few crazy people uh, wanting to get revenge. Here we are talking about community affairs, in which uh, there is a complicity of the local authorities, maybe the sheriff, the mayor, the local judge. Very often they would knew exactly who was responsible, or who was part of those mobs, but they would not do anything uh, about it.
0: All of these stories are so tragic, but are there a couple in particular that you've come across in this database of Virginia lynchings that you could share with me, the stories behind them?
3: Yes. Uh, I think one of the cases is about the lynching of uh, Charlotte Harris in Harrisonburg in 1878. uh, She was the only African-American woman to have been lynched in Virginia that we know of. And she was accused of uh, instigating the burning of a barn of a prominent rich white farmer. And so she um, she escaped and she was found in Albemarle County and she was taken to Harrisonburg before a magistrate. And then she was put in jail awaiting for trial. So then a night, uh, a dozen people or so came to the house of this jailer and uh, took her from the jailers and they hanged her to a tree uh, and they left her body hanging for uh, almost three days. For for what we know from newspapers, uh, it's very likely that she had nothing to do with the sparing of this barn.
0: What caused lynching to end? In Virginia, it actually ended not long after Raymond Byrd, the man who was lynched in Withville, was killed in 1926.
3: Yes, there was another case in uh, 1927 in West County, Virginia, the lynching of uh, Leonard Woods in 1927. Really, that was the case that sparked the Virginia um, government to pass anti-lynching legislation in uh, 1928.
0: Why did they bother?
3: There was a campaign for years by especially newspapers uh, to try to pass some form of legislation uh, against lynching. The Virginia governors, they were always been very reluctant uh, to pass this form of uh, legislation. But in the end, they were convinced uh, not so much from trying to protect uh, African-American victims, but really as a way of showing that Virginia was becoming part of the new South in terms of uh, being willing to attract business and capital. Did the other states soon follow? Well, I take issue with the fact that lynching stopped in 1928. So what happens after 1928, uh, African-Americans there get killed by mobs, they're not lynched anymore, but they commit suicide or they disappear so that there is no legal consequences for this act. Uh. So, for example, the lynching of uh, Shedrick Thompson in uh, 1932, uh, it's a textbook case of uh, someone who was lynched by a mob, by the local coroner, the local authorities, ruled it as a a suicide. So there was no investigation of it. And even though there was uh, also a big hole in the skull of a... Shedding Thompson, he ruled it as a suicide rather than, of course, a a lynching.
0: Oh, wow. What a travesty.
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: What advice do you have for communities and citizens who'd like to shed more light on this in their own communities across the country? What sorts of things can they do that would really memorialize these victims?
3: Uh, One of them is uh, through uh, historical markers. You know, the one that we see throughout uh, United States that commemorates some kind of like civil wars and kind of heroes. Uh, You can have uh, those kind of historical markers being erected. Uh, Another way is working with the Equal Justice Initiative uh, in which in their uh, museum in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, they have these uh, steel markers with the name of all the victims of lynching for each county. So each county can actually ask to bring back these particular steel markers and put them in some kind of symbolic place in uh, their county. There is also the soil uh, remembrance program in which uh, soil is collected from uh, the places where lynching have happened and uh, they put in a jar and sent to this museum as a way of commemorating the places where this lynching have taken place.
0: Gianluca DeFazio is a professor of justice studies at James Madison University. His database is called Racial Terror, Lynching in Virginia, 1877 to 1927. In 1962, at the centennial of the Civil War, a man named Ralph Ginsburg published a book called 100 Years of Lynchings. It cataloged newspaper accounts of racialized lynchings that took place throughout the previous century. Many of the accounts cited the names of the victims. Dr. Renee Hill is the former chair of the History and Philosophy Department at Virginia State University, where she organized two memorial services to victims of racialized lynching using Ginsburg's book as a source. Dr. Hill has since retired And she joins me now to talk about the powerful experience of naming as remembrance. Renee, last year, you created a deeply moving memorial service to all the people who've been victimized by racialized lynching in America. What moved you to do that? An African philosopher, John Mbiti,
4: wrote that, as long as the departed person is remembered by name, He is not really dead. I taught a class in African philosophy, and when I read that quotation by Mbidi, I was really inspired to organize this program. I had also recently read an article about a program where the names of the victims of the Holocaust were read. And so we decided that we wanted to do this in a sacred space. We've done this program twice now, once in the chapel and once in our meditation center last February um, called the Oasis. So we had the lights dim. There was quiet background music playing. We opened it with a song, Precious Lord."
5: Precious Lord,
4: sung by one of the members of our gospel choir. My
5: hand, lead me on and let me stand. I am tired. I-
4: and then a prayer by our campus minister. And then the president of the university, Dr. Abdullah, read the first set of names. So there is a book that has compiled as many names as they have been able to gather of the victims of racially motivated lynching. And as um, you probably know, there have been almost 3,500 Victims of Racially Motivated Lynching here in the U.S. between 1882 and 1968. And they're organizing this book by state. So it'll be Alabama, and then you have the, the names of the victims of lynching as well as the date and where the lynching took place. And you, you sit there in the semi-dark and you listen to name after name after name, sometimes whole families, and it is like a a weight is pressing on you harder and harder and harder as you sit there and listen. And what is most poignant for me is that at the end of each state, they have a list where they don't even know the name of the victim. And so it'll say, unknown Negro, and some the name of some town, and then the date. And I can only assume that either the body was so disfigured that they couldn't even recognize who it was. Um, I... <laughs> The first time, the first time we did this, I just, I just wept at that part because it'll go on and on, unknown Negro, unknown Negro. But I just have to assume that, even though we don't know their name, the fact that we know the date and the location, that somehow they are triangulated by the universe, and they know somewhere that we're still remembering them. We're still commemorating them. We're still reaching across to hold their
0: hand. You have done this twice, as you said, and fairly recently. Why now? Because
4: in some ways it's still going on. The fact that black life is still considered expendable, that we can um, still have People shot down in cold blood or strangled um, shows that we're still not equating black lives with the importance of other lives in our country. And so it's not only honoring, commemorating the people who died, you know, after the Civil War at the turn of the 20th century but it's also thinking about and making us aware
0: of the importance of Black lives right now. This took place at Virginia State University, an HBCU, an historically Black university, that was founded in 1882. Ironically, 1882 was around the same time that these racially terrorizing lynchings began. Yes, that period after the
4: Civil War... And the Reconstruction period was a terrifying period as whites decided that they could not give up control and decided to fight back by terrorizing us in various creative and cruel ways. So yes, even at the same time that there were positive things, universities being started to help those formerly enslaved to start new lives. At the same time, there were all kinds of brutalities and cruelties going on. What
0: sort of responses did you hear from people who attended afterward?
4: Most people felt that it was deeply moving, although it sometimes takes a while to recover. I know it does for me, um, that there's just this deep sadness that overtakes you when you hear name after name after name of men and women and children over and over who died so brutally um, and sometimes so disrespectfully when people were um, watching it as a spectacle, you know? And so it takes a while to to come back to center when you're dealing with such cruelty.
0: Really? Children were lynched? Mm-hmm. There were entire families. How could such a thing happen, right? Yes, well, human
4: beings are capable of great kindness and great cruelty.
0: What else did you choose for the service? What concluding music?
4: We concluded with Spoken Word, which is original poetry that was composed and performed by one of my students um, who worked in the Oasis, our meditation center. And then the hymn, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which was sung by a member of the gospel choir because it talks about coming to take me home. And I would like to share with you the poem by... Our student, Nursa Backstrom, who composed it and performed it for the first time there at our our performance, at our program. Blood on the leaves, blood at the roots, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, from the poplar trees. Can you see my ancestors? Can you hear their children's cry? The fruit of their labor forced to watch as they rot. America has always thrived on black trauma. They force us to watch as our families were beaten, raped, and killed. The blood on the leaves is the same blood in the streets. They roped up our ancestors and gunned down our brothers. Yet they still say we are the violent ones. They shoot us for having toy guns, yet white males are shooting up churches and being provided a meal. They shoot us for wearing a hoodie. They shoot us in front of our children. They shoot us while our hands are up. They wrap their arms around us so tight and don't even let go even when we tell them we can't breathe. Have you ever seen a black body turn blue? Have you ever seen people that once looked like you, looking like strange fruit? The blood on the leaves is the same as the blood in the streets. They've been lynching us for hundreds of years. Their weapons of destruction have just taken a different form. But the victims still look the same, and the pain still feels the same. But one thing that must remain We must keep saying their names No matter the magnitude of pain No matter how many are slain We must keep saying their names We must keep saying their names Blood on the leaves Blood at the roots Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, from the poplar trees.
5: Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home.
0: Dr. Renee Hill is the former chair of the History and Philosophy Department at Virginia State University. Earlier you heard Precious Lord, sung by Charles Chico Wiley. We leave you now with Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, sung by Chiquita L. Cross.
5: to me. Coming for to carry me home.
0: with good reason is provided by the university of virginia health system pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients uvahealth.com with good reason is produced by virginia humanities which acknowledges the monacan nation the original people of the land and waters of our home in charlottesville virginia our production team is allison Quantz, matt darrow lauren francis and jamal milner Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.